the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Planted. I'm your host, Sarah Pion. This is our third episode, and I am so excited to introduce you to you, if you don't know her already, one of my favorite people, dear friend and colleague in this industry and movement, Mara Gordon. Mara Gordon is the co-founder of The Oil Plant, Aunt Zelda's, Cala Spring Wellness, and Zelda Therapeutics. She specializes in the development of cannabis treatment protocols for seriously ill patients and is a pioneer in the medical cannabis industry globally. When I first heard Mara speak, it was at Patients Out of Time in Portland, Oregon, and I was just so inspired because I was freshly out of chemo. I had only been in recovery for a little over a year and just to hear somebody who had the same passion around cannabis as I did but so much more information um, I was just incredibly inspired and had hope that we were going to be doing a lot of good in this industry especially for the critically ill and then I felt very lucky to be able to get to know her for say how many years have we known each other now well, um, uh, first of all, Sarah, I'm delighted to be on your program. I could not be a bigger fan of you, personally and professionally. Um, I, I'm trying to remember because I've spoken to so many patients at a time. I'd have to almost look at the, um, but I think it was 2014. Does that sound about right? That does sound about right. Yeah. 2012 was in. Uh, Tucson, Arizona. So yeah, and back in those days, Patients at a Time was every other year. Yep. Yep. Right. And then we both did uh, West Palm Beach the following year. That's right. That's right. Yes, we did. Wow. It's been quite a journey taking us all over the place. <laughs> I know. Time flies. Um, I I wanted to, to talk about a little bit before cannabis because I think one of the things that impressed me and really just I think is is a big indicator of your your thoroughness in your work was your background as a process engineer. Yes, um, I um, I had I actually showed some of my notes the other day to a gentleman. I was at a meeting down in Los Angeles, and he had asked me to do some things, and I started taking notes, you know, in advance, and showed him my what I had done, and he goes am I looking at a beautiful mind here? What am I looking at? <laughs> because I, I go into such, I mean, what I do as a process engineer is figure out how to make things repeatable, accurate, consistent, and, and traceable so that we can have some sort of order in whatever we're doing. Now, previous to cannabis, I was applying this in a world that ha is also truly chaotic. And that was, in the in the world of technology, first in the dot com and then in you know large Fortune fifties, helping them like organize and figure out how to design their software systems to meet their needs without having a lot of redundancy and um, inaccuracy. So bringing that skill set over to cannabis, um, uh, the engineering hat that I put on, it's always going to be around data and trying to find. Uh, patterns and, 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 and locating them and then using that uh, uh, additional skills to validate them to make sure that they aren't just, you know, one off. You know, I like to compare that to um, when people, uh, I know it sounds strange, but when people hang wallpaper, mm -hmm. 
you know, a lot of times you don't know if it's going to be, if the pattern on the wallpaper is going to repeat every two inches, three inches, 18 inches, 24 inches, you know, how much are you going to have to uh, adjust this to find out where the pattern is and how big it is. And the problem with a lot of what I've seen in cannabis, and I know you didn't ask this, but I'm just, I'm going there anyway, <laughs> right away. Oh, please do. The, um, thank you. It's these really, really small ends that people are using to make generalizations. When we don't know yet, like just because something, you know, like, they, like I think Donald Abrams is the one, or he's one of the people who says, you know, the multiple of anecdotal isn't evidence. It's just anecdotal. You know, and when I have somebody who says to me, well, I treated my mother, so now I can treat, you know, you or somebody else, I'm like, that is an N of one. We don't know yet, even an N of 100, we don't know if the repeat or wherever it's going to be, is it 1,000, 5,000? Mm -hmm. And that is why we need to do more studies and collect more data around cannabis and its usage. Yeah, I, I remember the first time um, when I was working at, the dispensary when somebody came up to me and asked me for the oil cure and I remember <laughs> actually being kind of not offended by the person but just at the thought that somebody put that kind of hope in their head because as you know when we we're critically ill people come out of the woodwork trying to sell you and your family magic beans um oh yeah you know and that was one of the things that really impressed me with um with just, you know, patients out of time when you were speaking and there were patients there that were able to speak to the fact that um, their use of cannabis and and many times, most times in conjunction with their traditional allopathic medicine was what created change in them and helped them actually get past their illness. But what I was really impressed with, which how did I say it? What impacted me the most was just the approach and where it wasn't just, you know, flood your receptors with THC, start with oil the size of a grain of rice and go to a gram a day. But it was more having the real conversations and, you know, as, as a mother, having a mother who's a, a cancer researcher, like the fact that there are specific protocols for, you know, specific illnesses, but then it dials down even deeper where you get into metabolism and age and all of that. And that was where I was looking at, here's somebody who's who's actually tapping into the real science and starting the real research to to actually have something that, you know, healthcare professionals can learn from and, and work with their patients in the future. Well, you know, thank you for saying that. I think that the, the key to, to anybody who looks at me and the path I've taken in cannabis over all these years is I've had a single focus consistently for almost nine years, and that has been to solve the dosing conundrum in order to empower medical professionals to treat patients more thoroughly, incorporating cannabinoids into their treatment protocols. It's not to say you don't need a doctor. It's not to say use this instead of that. It's none of that. It's about how do we solve this? So I, start, I approached it very similarly to any sort of a research. And it's like, okay, what are all of the possible types of information that a medical professional may need in order to make a good decision? So I approached it by creating my platform, which is an electronic medical record system which, you know, you go to the doctor and you make an appointment and they send you 11 or 12 pages in the mail. They expect you to fill it out 
then you forget it at home, then you have to do it again when you're sitting in the doctor's office and you have to wait there while the receptionist types it all in. I mean, that's the reality of our current healthcare system for the most part. Um, rarely are things done electronically, but what I did was I took those types of questionnaires and I, you know, and I uh, replicated it so that we would be getting all that information for the doctors and then added the relevant cannabis questions that we know are necessary in order to be able to make some determinations to find the pattern. And then also I figured since I'm creating this from scratch anyway, if there are things that I have hypotheses around, I might as well ask questions about that too, because until we have enough data around it, it's just a hypothesis. It's not, it's a guess, right? Mm-hmm. So like, for example, um, you know, one of the things that I've been collecting on for years is um, what, what is your ethnic family of origin? What part of the world, what region are you from? Because that's extremely important if you're looking at um, uh, what the, the profiles of the medicines. I want to see if there's a pattern that we can say, okay, if your family is from uh, Asia, for example, then this is the profile that perhaps is going to be a starting point in you know, you applying the 80-20 rule you know, of cases, or if your family is from you know, somewhere, Jamaica, maybe it's this profile, that kind of thing. I have absolutely no idea at this point whether there's going to be a pattern, but I figured if I didn't ask the question, how would I ever know? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's just further mapping out all the possibilities, right? It, exactly. It's like, it's looking for as many clues as we could possibly and not, and not saying no to any of them until we have enough evidence to know whether they're relevant or not. What has yeah. been the interest um, by, by medical, the medical professionals in the medical field in your work? How's that going? Well, I, yeah, I, well, you know, I've spoken twice at Harvard. I've spoken at Stanford, uh, Jerusalem. I mean, I've spoken all over the world at some of the top universities. In fact, on September 11th and 12th, I'll be speaking in Boston at a uh, pharmaceutical conference, an international pharmaceutical conference that they've asked me to speak at. So these people are starving for good information. And because I have not approached this as, I do the same thing as you, I know more than you, and instead of of approached it as, I am here to help empower you, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not taking away your your job as being the primary uh, caregiver, and as a result, they have been incredibly receptive, and of course, there's those that aren't, but I have doctors clamoring from around the world saying, you know, I want to use your platform. When can I start using it? When can I start, you know, treating it? Or, or they send me their, their patients. I had a Skype call on um, Monday morning with these two doctors, one of whom has leukemia. And they had been referred to me for information. And I kept saying, I would really like you to see one of our doctors. I'd really like you to talk to, you know, Dr. Harry. He's the functional medicine. And they're sitting there taking copious notes on everything I'm saying, and I'm trying to push them over to the doctor. But they're so starving for information so that their patients don't know so much more than them or their patients aren't getting really awful information like buying products from, you know, Amazon and Etsy, you know, Barney's of New York is selling CBD like it's candy. I mean, this is dangerous stuff. And when, and because I have not positioned myself as replacing them, 
for the most part, it's been good. And the one, you know, it's like, it's like Dr. Seuss says, you know, <laughs> you know, those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. So I'll figure I'll talk to the doctors who care. Yeah. Yeah. I, that I, I think is one thing that I've noticed too with my education, educational work, um, because I'll have medical professionals attending classes or like yesterday morning, I did a training with um, some pharmacology students at UCSF, just having the conversation about this is what your patients are curious about. This is what they're using. This is what you need to know. And we encourage patients and clients depending on whether, you know, how they're accessing cannabis, to have these conversations with you because you need to know what they're taking. And, you know, it's one thing that everybody always admits to is that they also learn from their patients, too, with the information that they bring forth. So I, I think that, that having healthy partnerships with healthcare professionals to empower them is, is a wonderful thing. And I think a lot of them are getting it, especially with legalization and people being more curious about in California. I, what, what do you think about that? I think that doctors are definitely grabbing, you know, the, the bull by the horn and saying, I, you know, I'm just, it's just, it's undeniable what's happening. You know, you have greater restrictions on using opioids, for example, for uh, pain relief. And the reality is we've known for a very long time that opioids are great uh, for acute pain. There's nothing better than morphine when you're really suffering. But if you've got a disease and your, your disease is the chronic pain, then it's not an option, and cannabis is. So if a doctor is truly committed to the health and wellness of his patient, or her patient, it's almost impossible to not be looking at this realistically now. It's just, you know, it's just, you'd have to be willfully ignorant at this point to not understand that cannabis has, has promise, you know, even for the low hanging fruit, like anxiety and sleep, Yeah. you know? So, so I think that the doctors, I, I think they're coming on board. You know, I like to say that there's two different kinds of doctors. Um, in my experience, you have, Doctors that are that are that are scientists, and what I mean by that is that they're they're curious, they're life learners, and it's not like oh, I just have to do my CMEs to keep my license, and I'll go and play golf and not even attend the session. Or you have you know you have the doctors that are truly curious and wanting to continuously stay on innovate on top of innovation to take care of their patients. You see a lot of these types of doctors um, going to these conferences now. And asking the questions um, of people like you and people like me, and uh, that's awesome. But then you get this, that group of doctors that thinks that once they got their degree and once they were finished, then they're just tradesmen. You know, it's like they've got their physician desk reference. You come in with a diagnosis. They look it up. If you got this, then you take this. And if that doesn't work, then you take that. And they just go through that and boom, boom, boom. And they, they lack the curiosity mm-hmm. to allow them to stay engaged with learning. It's really amazing to see who's, who's the critical thinker and who is not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that one, one thing I've noticed, too, when I'm always pleased when I find that people are getting recommendations from their physicians to try cannabis or that they're supportive of it. But one thing that always gives me pause is when this, the safe recommendation is always going towards CBD. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Especially around things like sleep and just general pain. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know why doctors, I mean, what is wrong with our society that we are so afraid of actually having a feeling? Um, it just is, it, it, it mind boggles me that, you know, we'll give, you know, people drink coffee and eat sugar and, and drink alcohol and take opioids or do all these things and that's okay. But somehow the word quote unquote psychoactivity, whatever that means, you know, because I, I can look at a, a bag of black licorice and I'm going to tell you, I'm having psychoactivity because I want to go get some. <laughs> I love black licorice, right? Right, right. <laughs> My pupils are dilating. I'm getting happy. You know, I'm kind of kidding a little bit here, but the reality is it's, it's, it's as normal. Humans have been seeking out mind altering experiences since the beginning of and before recorded history. So when did it become a dirty word to actually have a feeling? And the, and the fact that doctors are buying into this hype around CBD, number one, not causing psychoactivity, which just is not true in so many cases, but also number two, as if it's inert, as if it doesn't matter. Um, when the reality is when you look at the interaction potential with the uh, cytochrome P450 system and, and the enzymes in the liver for metabolizing uh, the, uh, many, many pharmaceuticals, CBD has a potential greater risk in many ways than THC does. So they're, they're not really doing their homework fully when they tell people to just use CBD. Yeah, when I when I talk to physicians and and pharmacists and I mention that interaction, their eyes get wide, and then that's almost when I have to tell them stop. This doesn't mean that you need to backpedal and everything is bad. This means that there are certain things that you just need to keep in mind with certain people. It's it's a mind- exactly. You just need to be. Re- yeah, I'm sorry. Oh no okay. no no! You were gonna, yeah. were gonna say yeah. yeah. So you just have to be responsible. Like, for example, I was um, I had testified on Capitol Hill on the farm bill and some of the issues around the farm bill. And and you know me well enough to know, Sarah, I am I'm always going to be the voice of this is the fact. This is the science. Don't care if I'm popular. Yeah. Couldn't care less about being popular. Does not occur to me. Figure if I'm popular, then I don't stand for anything. So um, I'm up there and I'm saying, this isn't a game. You guys are acting like, you know, hemp CBD. It's like, oh, it's just CBD. Like, what does that mean? You guys are going to be the ones that screw it all up because someone's going to get hurt and then they're going to throw away all of it together when we can be doing this correctly in a regulated market. But I had an opportunity to speak with the former uh, majority leader, Tom Daschle, who is now on a uh, advisory board for a hemp company. And uh, he had seen the movie, Weed the People, so he already knew who I was. And when I talked to him, I said, you know, people were, I said, this, is a, this isn't a game. This is serious. This is serious medicine that people have to have a right to and have access to. And on the other hand, they need to have access to safe products, but also honest information right and not just a sale type that's out there and and i i expected him to say okay well let's let's talk about this i'm going to put you with these people and we're going to make sure we're safe you know still waiting for the call yeah (laughs) yeah that's that i think like you know at the risk of 
I don't I don't mean to sound hippy dippy, but like when we're looking at cannabis, it's almost a macrocosm, microcosm sort of thing because you know, nothing is black or white and there needs to be critical thought and mindfulness. Uh And that's something that isn't just residing within cannabis, but it's really, you know, in the world around us. And so it's, it's a way of kind of creating some mindfulness and presence that can echo beyond that. And I'm always surprised when people just want to say either it's good or bad, or it's really good till they find something that disappoints them about it. And they're like, Oh no, it's, it's all bad. You know, I mean, that's like even when we're talking about um, like, you know, CBD derived from hemp. It's like it's it's almost I feel like we are reluctant to talk about some of the things that we need to be worried about just because we're afraid that that's going to create a environment of prohibition again. Um, right. You know, and that's right. That, that I, is I, I completely happen. agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And then when we're looking at you know, CBD derived from industrial hemp, there's that conversation about just, you know, hemp, cannabis, uh, the plant is a bioaccumulator. And so when we're looking at industrial hemp, you know, what does that mean? CBD derived from I think, right, right, right. I think that everybody needs to stay in their own lane. Um, I am a huge proponent, huge supporter of hemp. Yeah. I think that hemp has the potential to, without sounding melodramatic, save our planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are really in danger here. And hemp, it grows fast. It's versatile. It's cheap. It has uh, a really small footprint. It's not, you know, I mean, look at the almond crops, for God, and what they're doing to water in, in, in California. It's crazy. I mean, we have a lot of things that we could be doing with hemp on, you know, textiles and, and fuels and building materials. And, and I mean, the, the list is on and on and on, even down to the drinking straw. Right. And how nutritious it, it have is. To, right, right. So why does it have to also be the cannabinoid that is available in a regulated market that requires in-depth lab testing, including heavy metals and all those sorts of things that this accumulator plant is a danger of having. Now, granted, some good players are doing a better job of growing this industrial hemp without having it have any kind of dirt, uh, dirty properties in it. Yeah. But then why are they not being regulated the same way that cannabis is? Because it's not cannabis, that's, that it's, it's not THC that's Schedule 1. It's cannabis that's Schedule 1. And the only CBD that's not Schedule 1 is Epidiolex, which is Schedule 5. So people are playing loose in, in three with this, and I just hope nobody gets hurt and then and ruins it for everybody. Uh, that's really my biggest, day and my biggest fear um, with this. Because the arbitrary point three for, you know, below that for THC for it to be hemp, it's like it, it's like it created this, you know, I feel like I was like Animal House. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, it's it's um I think it's very confusing for the public as well. Mm-hmm. Um yes. and, you know, and there are like you said there are some some very good players in, you know, the the CBD industry that's derived from hemp, but for all that we also have the multi-level marketing and I actually had somebody who showed up at a class um that I did on CBD, CBDA and THCA where they were asking a lot of questions and it seemed like 
they were they were new to oh. cannabis and one of the questions they asked me was was hemp the plant or was hemp the seed and so i had to go into explanations around that and you know there's in my classes there's no such thing as a dumb <sighs> question but the kicker, right. the kicker was when it, we were done and they came up to me they actually had a cbd company yep so here's what's going on you've got these multi-level marketing companies that um, we actually had, a, we actually had somebody who we had been treating for years, and all of a sudden their friend was a um, distributor for this MLM, and was going to like cut the price and get them a better deal on CBD, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they decided to support their friend. Well, the cancer started coming back because there was no requirement to actually say. You know, we sent some. We helped somebody titrate to a what we call a therapeutic dose, mm-hmm. and so it's important that you know what's in the medicine, so you know when you're at that dose. Because it was this, this just CBD from hemp. It wasn't required to have anything. There was no labeling that was required that was accurate, and even if it was required, that people aren't paying attention to it. It's, it's, it reminds me of the old underground market in California before. Prop 64, mm-hmm. and uh, with no labeling requirements, no testing requirements, things like that. Um, it, when we actually looked at the product, there was hardly anything in it. So he wasn't getting the amount of, which is why he was getting sick again, he was not getting the amount of, of medicine that he actually required. Mm-hmm. And that is dangerous. And the thing about it is we need to empower doctors to understand that Cannabis is not any more frightening than any other drug or treatment that you put somebody on. All medicine is bespoke medicine because we all have to go on multiple things before, oftentimes before we find that one solution that works for us. And cannabis is no different. The only difference is when you're dealing with something that has, you know, 500 components potentially, you have to have a little bit more uh, information around what the contents of the different ones are. And that's what we're working to help them to be empowered to understand how to use. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's an interesting conversation because uh, when I speak with healthcare professionals, they always want to have exact ratios and dosages. And then I always, mm-hmm. I always look at them and I smile and I'm like, but you know that's not how it works when you're prescribing pharmaceuticals. And then and what do they say to that? They're like, oh, of course, of course, of course. I'm like, so yeah. it's the same. Right. It is the same. <laughs> it is the same. It is the same. I mean, I can't even tell you. You you know my personal story and you know how many insane. I mean, and if you ever like my TED talk where I talk about the 26 pharmaceuticals and all that. Do you have any idea how crazy it was, how many they put me on? And But the thing about it is, is they didn't ever take me off of something. They just kept adding things. It's like, oh, that doesn't work, so we're going to add this. And it, wasn't, and it wasn't like they would say, okay, well, this didn't work, so let's take you off and put you on, try a different one, which is, would have been responsible. With cannabis, we're not telling people just take, take it all. And the whole idea of the gram a day, I mean, my hair's on fire even thinking about that. I get so angry. Yeah. You know, that whole, what does a gram a day even mean? Does that mean a thousand milligrams of cannabinoids? Does it mean a gram of weight, you know, of, of, of what the actual is? And it could have 200 milligrams in it. And who knows what's in it, you know, so. Yeah, I think that that's, that really speaks to unpacking the mythology around cannabis because we have a lot of stuff that's folk medicine from, you know, from the, that so-called protocol to, 
you know, when we're relying on the names of, of flowers rather than looking at, you know, the chemical makeup of it. And, and I, that's one of the things that I think is incredibly important and valuable, one of the many things that you do with your work. Um, because not only are you, you creating, you're looking at the science, but you are breaking down a lot of the mythology, which is I- incredibly important. Um, and getting that message out, like where you're speaking at educational institutions, healthcare institutions, working with researchers, and going back to your TED talk, I'd like to talk about censoring the information because, In, yeah, mm-hmm. because it's it's interesting when you think about we need to get good information out, and yet people are still afraid of it. Yeah, I got a note from somebody yesterday. I was driving back from LA, and they're like you know, oh my God, you know, I love when things start out with, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it, or actually I think it's like initials, but it's like, I was just looking at your Ted talk to share it with somebody. And there's this big uh, warning about how it's not to be used for health information. It's not to be used for this. It doesn't meet terms of service, yada, yada, yada. So I was like, when I got home, I took a look at it and I was, I was a little bit shocked. Um, because I thought, wow, I must have really been saying something that was right for somebody to get so upset. I wonder who it was. Was it a pharmaceutical company? Was it, you know, somebody taking federal funds that doesn't like the cannabis? But if you look at all the TED Talks that have been out there with cannabis, um, I think mine, I don't know, I can't say this because I don't, haven't seen all the other ones, and if they've been taken down, I have no way of knowing, but I couldn't find another one that had had this, you know, warning of censorship potential on the talk. And so I called the, and I had a conversation after I did an email exchange with the people that did the TED um, event. And they said, you, they, they, they watched my whole presentation again this morning. They went through it, you know, with a fine tooth comb and they were like, yeah, we don't see anywhere where you broke any terms. You were complete. You, you didn't make medical claims. I didn't make give medical advice. I didn't anything. I tell my own personal story. I talk continuously throughout there about empowering doctors and helping doctors to treat their patients. You know, I mean, is it like taboo to explain the difference between a milligram and a milliliter? I mean, to me, that's just kind of like, you know, a public service announcement, right? Right. So I'm not really sure um, how we have a First Amendment right where hate groups can put out their horrible things and yet to be talking about potentially people helping themselves or helping to have a conversation with their patients or doctors how is that how is that harmful i don't see where the harm is no you're always so that one of the things that i respect is that you're always so careful with how you present the information and you always I mean, even down to the fact that you actually have physicians that work for you. You're not, you're not making yourself into a doctor. You're very clear about the fact that you're a researcher and you're doing this work. Um, I'd like to talk a little. Ab- yeah, I well, I just I just it just makes me crazy. It may, I mean, <laughs> it's only because it's you that I'm being so. <laughs> it, it makes me crazy though when people. Hater, you know what? Haters are gonna hate. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I can say. Haters are gonna hate, right? Yeah, no, it's it's so true. It's so true. And actually, mm-hmm. when in your in your TED talk, because you did mention earlier, um, 
in the podcast about the different pharmaceuticals that you had to use prior. But for our mm-hmm. listeners, if you could just, I know normally you like you, you like to get more into the science and in the now, but could you let our listeners know about your experience with cannabis and, and what brought you into it personally? Sure, sure. Um, you know, a little bit of a 10,000 foot view, but um, I had had uh, bacterial spinal meningitis back in 1996. And um, uh, one of the, the problems is I'm allergic to penicillin because I was given it almost weekly as a child. There's so many of us that can't use penicillin now because they over-prescribed it when we were, you know, through early years before they knew any better. And so your body can develop an allergy. That's what happened to me. Okay. Well, so the medicine that they had to give me to get rid of the meningitis caused some pretty severe, like my kidney damage and lung damage and other things. And my spine is in pretty rough shape from it as well. So I, um, I had, you know, recouped my life to a certain extent, but I was living in uh, excruciating pain. And at some at one point, I ended up in a wheelchair um, on all of these pharmaceuticals, including fentanyl patch, uh, Neurontin, and uh, which some people call, you know, bring uh, gabapentin, mm-hmm. and um, Norco and. I mean, there was just, the, the list was so long that I was actually sleeping with an oxygen regenerator because the opioids would make my breathing slow down so much that I would stop breathing at night. It wasn't sleep apnea. It was, it was from the opioids. Wow. So I was on all these drugs and I had this, I had this kind of, you know, moment of clarity where it was like, you know what? I am still in so much pain. So why am I taking all these if that's what they're supposed to be solving and they're not? I was having to take medicine for my kidneys. I was having to take medicine. Everything had, and then everything had a side effect that had another drug prescribed to deal with that side effect and on and on ad nauseum. Um, my husband tells me that at one point it was 33 drugs, but I, and it probably was, but 26 is pretty well where I remember it most of the time. But then again, I was so drugged. How can I remember? Right. Right. Um, so I spent about a year and a half to two years. I don't recall exactly now titrating down off of the medications. Um, uh, we took, we made a chart and we looked at every pharmaceutical that I was on in one column. And then we put all the side effects possible in the other column. And then we put, we took and we connected how many drugs that I was taking to deal with the side effects that were causing another issue that I then had another drug that required another drug to get rid of that side effect. And it was like, you've got to be kidding me. It was like a game of pixie sticks when you first throw them down. Like, how are you going to unravel this mess? So I just started with the lowest hanging fruit and started going off of one after another. And, um, at the end of it, you know, I am on now on three pharmaceuticals and that's it. Mm-hmm. Now I still, I take, I take supplements. I take a lot of supplements, um, you know, not a crazy amount, not as much as a lot of people do. And, uh, and I do it with, you know, diet and exercise and things like that. But what I was, what I found was I could take, um, 
the tiniest amount of cannabis in, in, and have it be effective in taking my pain from a level nine down to a level two. There's, it, cannabis does not touch a level 10 pain. I'm, not, I'm just going to say that right there. It, it, you still need, I mean, op, all opioids aren't bad. Right. The, the present use of opioids and the way that they're being prescribed, it's the problem. The, the poppies are fantastic. Thank God we have them. Right? I, I yeah. completely agree. I, that, I mean, I use, I use a ratio of CBD to THC to manage my peripheral neuropathy left over from chemo. It's like eight years mm-hmm. out, and some days I still have problems walking and holding stuff. But when it gets right. to, you know, those bad days, those are the days where I need to use at least a small amount of opiates to manage it because THC doesn't touch it and CBD doesn't, it doesn't. either. And, and, right. And, and, if, and here's, here's the, one, of the, one of the problems is if you go on social media, which <laughs> let's not be getting started, but if you go down social media and you were to, let's say you were to post, I'm having a bad pain day, so I use my cannabis, but ooh, I also took some whatever, you know, Norco or Vicodin or whatever. The haters that would start coming out telling you that you're wrong for using pharmaceuticals, you, you know, they're, they're, they're the devil and all this and that, they're doing more harm for the acceptance by the medical community than anything that, that, that you or I could possibly do. Because when, you, when, when I have people that shame, um, I say patients of mine, but I mean mine, I mean the, the, the royal mine, mine and our doctors and nurses who take care of them, but people within our organization who do, when they, they'll, they'll get shamed for using chemotherapy in addition to cannabis. So they'll get shamed for the fact that there's a pharmaceutical. Well, you know what? I've got pretty severe asthma. Thank God I've got an inhaler. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, go and smoke a joint when I'm having an asthma attack. Right? Right. So uh, we have to really get people to just accept this as another drug in the toolbox with all the drugs, with each one being used correctly. But what brought me to cannabis initially was not even myself. It was my husband. Um, He just had on the 25th, he just celebrated 31 years of sobriety. And he had, um, he had, he had broken his back years before and, but it had, it had deteriorated to the point where he was about to have to be in a wheelchair. He was no longer even lifting his feet when he was walking. He was just shuffling along. And so they were like, you've got to have surgery right away. And he was unwilling to go on opioids, um, or at least to be on opioids without an end point because of it being uh, a, tr- a serious trigger for the phenomenon's craving for uh, an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So it's the same part of the brain for alcohol as it is for opioids. So um, he wasn't willing to do that. So we started investigating other opportunities. And um, this woman that who I had met uh, while we were traveling started telling me about what she made for her boyfriend and she made him brownies. And so I, that's, you know, that's where I started saying, okay, let me figure this out. And I went and got the, the flowers and made my own oil and put it into my Aunt Zelda's carrot cake, which is where the Aunt Zelda came from. 
but uh, it was like I, I was so angry that no doctor had ever told me that this was an option. But I, on the other hand, I was so grateful that now I saw hope for the future. And he was able to successfully have surgery. And in five weeks, he and this was a major, you know, uh, eight-hour surgery where they cut him front and back and flipped him over, and it was awful. Oh man! And yet, in five weeks, yeah, in five weeks, he was completely titrated off of any opioids, and he's never had to use one since. And that was in the beginning of 2011. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, and that's the thing mm-hmm. with opioids, not to. You know, also going back to, I'll preface it with what we were talking about earlier, that there is a time and a place for them for therapeutic use. But I I know for Mm -hmm. me, when I was going through, when I had my tumor removed and they did the resectioning, I was on opiates for uh, two weeks. And when it was time to wean off, it was crazy how much my body had become dependent on it. And I'm a person who... In my early 20s, they told me, you have asthma, you have to stop smoking cigarettes. And I just stopped. And my friends were like, that's crazy that you can do that. Nicotine is so addictive. But I didn't have an issue Mm -hmm. with it. But with opiates, my body, just the withdrawal symptoms were gnarly. Yeah, there's a difference between physical dependency and addiction. They're completely different things. Like, for example, I have no phenomenon of craving around opioids. In fact, the doctor used to try to bully me to use more, and I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Yet, when I got off of fentanyl, I have never experienced anything as excruciating in my life as getting off of that. And it took me six weeks or five weeks. I tried to rush it at the end. And as a result, one day I had a seven hour panic attack because I was trying to get off of this and they didn't bother giving me anything to get. They didn't say, Oh, take this to help with the side effects of getting off of this. It's like, now you take it. Now you don't. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I, I, I came across being able to use THC to help me with that accidentally. And it was it was really, really helpful to relieve the restless legs and everything that I was going through and just not being able to mm-hmm. sleep. And, you know, it, I, I, I just think that there needs to be greater conversation about what we need to do sup, sup, as supplementary things that we need to do to support our system and really having a real conversation about integrative health. I completely completely agree with you. I mean, I could not be more in agreement. I mean, I was living in the in Colorado. We had that place here in California, but my husband and I had gone there for a while. And um, I, I mean, I'm about as I'm about as straight as you can be from the standpoint of, you know, not a drug user, not a, I wasn't smoking cannabis. It wasn't part of my lifestyle. It's still not my lifestyle. It's, it's, it's what I do. And, and it, it ends up in probably eating up 20 of my 24 hours a day. But I still don't think of it as I've become like this hippy dippy. I didn't burn my bra. I don't wear tie dye. You know, I don't have dreadlocks, you know, mm-hmm. and, and or any of those stereotypes. And yet when I was living in Colorado and I'm going, I was going through all these withdrawals. Why did no doctor say, I mean, it was legal in Canada, in, in Colorado at the time. Yeah. I mean, as legal as it was here, it was before it was, you know, uh, rec, but why did not a single doctor say to me, let me help you lessen your suffering as you get off of these drugs. Why didn't they say, here's cannabis. Nobody said it, not a single person. 
And I even had a doctor say to me, um, I will, t- I will, I will buy you a steak dinner, which I thought was funny since I've been a vegetarian for 48 years. This is, I'll buy you a steak dinner if you, if you get off these opioids, because I have never had a patient get off. Wow. How, how telling is that? Wow. Yeah. I mean, but that's, it. it's not surprising in many ways, because when I have the conversations in my trainings about that, people still look surprised that you can use right. cannabis right. to actually create that kind of relief. And I, you know. Right. That just goes back to the importance of education. I think, you know, there's there's the importance right. of education not only for the public, but also within the industry because I feel like there's there's a severe disconnect with that, especially when we're looking at the dispensary experience because many times I feel like the culture, the model is more around a retail experience and we're forgetting that. Whether we look at it as adult use or medicinal, it's still a substance that creates a reaction in the body. And in order to be taken seriously and to really look at this as a serious industry with serious benefits, I think we have to be serious. We have to be professional. That's like when I go into other states to lecture and people are like, look at you, you're in a suit. It's like, well, what would I be in? I'm presenting information. I'm talking to a professional body of people. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with stoner culture that has its time and its place, but if we really want to help people and make a mark, we have to show up in a way that stigma can't touch us. People can't hear you if they can't see you. Yes. And if they only see a stereotype, they have already made up their mind and made decisions. And one of the things that I love, there was an article that just came out in Forbes, I think yesterday about, I don't know, these, some of these articles, they just kind of crack me up. Like, how did they come up with, I guess, do we really need an article on this? But it was a very cool one. It was on, you know, uh, hip and, and cool stoner people. Uh-huh. And it listed a couple of, uh, three people that I knew out of the five or six that were listed. And I thought about it and I thought, what makes them stoners? They all work, they work extremely hard at their jobs. They're all in the cannabis space. Yeah. They're all incredibly intelligent. Right. So is it, what, what is it? Is it because they take a bong hit on camera that that makes them a stoner? I mean, where are we drawing? The line has, I used to think I knew where the line was because I came into this with every stereotype you can imagine uh-huh. because all I knew was cannabis. I thought it was a gateway drug. First of all, I didn't even know the word cannabis. I only knew the word marijuana or pot or weed or all the other pejorative ones. I didn't know cannabis until I got in here. Um, I thought it was a gateway to, you know, everyone I knew who used cannabis also used other drugs. So I didn't realize there was no causation. It was just a, you know, a weak correlation. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so I approached it with that same prejudice. And so I would meet people who, used cannabis as part of their everyday life and they didn't have an obvious medical issue and they were just getting high because that's what they wanted to do. And I judged them. Well, I don't judge them anymore because I've learned how incorrect I was about the information that I had. It was just based upon propaganda that was out there. Now, having said that, there is one thing that I'm working on right now. I'm working on a white paper 
I haven't decided if it'll end up being a white paper because I don't know how, I don't know if I have the time to go that deep, but um, I've been having an ongoing discussion for quite some time with uh, Steve D'Angelo on the difference between recreational and medical. You know, he makes the statement that all cannabis use is medical, and I say absolutely not. It is not all medical. It has to do with the intention around using it. The intention around using anything medically is to remove something. It's to remove suffering. It's to remove pain. It's to remove your sleeplessness. It's to remove your anxiety. It's to remove your, you know, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. To remove, remove the rash you have remove the cancer tumor, whatever it is. When somebody is using it recreationally, they're using it with an intention to enhance, to create an experience, to enhance their level of enjoyment, to enhance their, you know, their thinking, maybe to, you know, whatever it is, it's a different intention around the two things. When a person is using it medically, you use it to the point where you achieve the results that you're going for, whatever your objective is, if your objective is to sleep eight hours and you sleep eight hours, that is a, that is a medical use. If you can take 10 milligrams and sleep eight hours, but you decide what the heck, I'm going to take 40 because I'm going to have some fun first, then you're combining a rec and a medical intention. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. Okay. Totally. Yeah. I I, I completely agree with that. I I always say, you know, as human beings, whether we realize it or not, we're constantly striving for homeostasis. And, you know, Mm -hmm. some of us go above that because we want to have other feelings. Others go beyond it as well because our thermostats are a little off, too, because there is... You know, even though cannabis is not physically addictive, we have psychological stories that we have around our relationships with whatever we put in our body. Um, Do we know that cannabis isn't? I I, I would, I'm just going to, you know, you know, I love you, but I'm going to (laughs) disagree with you. Cannabis, there's about, there's about 9% of the population that does become addicted to cannabis. They're not addictive in a dangerous way in the fact that they're not going to, shut down their respiratory system right like you would with opioids or alcohol potentially but there is most definitely people who are triggered with the phenomenon of craving around cannabis wanting more do you do you think where that, it is detrimental to their life yeah do you think that that's more around this this you you find, you think that's more around the physical rather than the psychological Well, if you look at what the definition of of addiction is based upon like what a 12-step program or something would say, uh, one of the, you know, there's all these criteria and one of the biggies is given sufficient reason to stop, are you able to? Mm. That's number, right? Right. That's one of them. The other one is when you start using it, do you just want more? Right. Right. So like, for example, um, I'll just use I'll just use my husband because he's given me full carte blanche to you know, spread his everything about him out in public. <laughs> but if um, I mean, married to me, you got no choice. But um, if if he went into a bar, you know, 31 years, that'd be pretty funny. And he ordered a beer. He would order 12 beers. He would have one. Mm-hmm. And then he would have more and more and more and more and more. Mm-hmm. 
if he went into a cannabis cafe or cannabis lounge, however they're called, and he had a hit off of a bong, he would be done if that accomplished what he was trying to accomplish. He would not have this more phenomenon. If I said to him, your cannabis use is interfering with our marriage, or you holding a job, I'm not going to use his, he's a, he's a chronic pain patient, so he's using it that way. Let's say he was using it recreationally, though. And, and for some reason, it was interfering with, with our marriage, or it was interfering with his relationships, or his ability to hold a job. And I said, you really need to get a handle on this. And he wasn't able to do that then that's addiction. That is addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and well, that's always why I, 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 one of the many reasons I love talking with you because you are a straight shooter and I, it is good to, we have a lot to unpack around this because going back to what we were talking about before, it's like we, there are, there are conversations that we're maybe not having as openly because we're afraid of it bringing up more stigma. And this is a really yes. important conversation to have. I would rather know everything there is to know so I can be prepared yeah. than to act like, you know, a Pollyanna or act like it's all good. It's like, shh, shh, don't let anyone know. Don't tell them that they can also do this or do that. Yeah. You know what? Like, let's look at what's going on right now with all these, these young people that are being hurt by these, these vaporizers out there. Right. You know? If, if the, the big ugly secret out there is people are using dangerous devices in many cases, or they're adding dangerous chemicals to these vape cartridges. There's all these things going on, but we as an industry, I mean, I, I did a post on, on, uh, I think it was LinkedIn or something last week where I was like, where is our statement as an industry? Where are our regulatory organizations saying, yes, we need, we need to do something about this. Everyone's acting like, oh, well, we're going to pretend like it's not happening because it might look bad for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Let's show that we want everything to be high quality and that we're going to self-regulate and make sure that that's the case. That's where we're going to get everybody off of our backs, not by acting like there's nothing that's dangerous about this. Yeah. And when we're looking at you know the e-cig cartridge, issue, it's interesting to note that that technology comes from tobacco technology. It comes from tobacco R&D, and therefore we were able to replicate it in cannabis. But I wonder if we had created that under the umbrella of cannabis, how that would have panned out, how that would have passed through. Right. I agree with you, because we all know that the tobacco industry really puts the safety of its consumers first, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Excuse me while my sarcasm hat goes on. So, uh, you know, so, I mean, to, to replicate a, 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 an industry that blatantly has shown a lack of caring for the health and well-being of, of people makes no sense when supposedly the big argument about why cannabis should be uh, available and allowed is because it's so much better for you. Right. So you can't have it both ways. No. And no. that's kind of what they're trying to do. Yeah. I, 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 it makes me uneasy uh, to think that 
that's carrying on. Um, and I know that in many ways, for me, my a lot of my work with spreading the message happens in small rooms with people. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. unless I'm writing an occasional article or, you know, I'm on the podcast. But um, I, I feel like there needs to be a greater forum for those conversations. Um, and I know people are nervous about it and they worry about their bottom lines. But human lives and quite honestly, creating a safe industry is far more important than any of that. I feel more like the guy who plants the tree knowing that he won't be alive to see the results of it, see mm-hmm. that tree grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to, I, that's kind of the space I sit in. Um, I want to create an environment so that the first line for physicians is I want to look at how I can do a better job or what can I do to treat my patient. And when they open up their physician desk reference, Cannabis is right there along with everything else. Do I think that's going to happen in the next few years? No. Am I working as if it is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To then have to counter these ridiculous, dangerous things that people are doing, treating it like it's a game when people are, people are potentially dying. It's, it's life and death. Mm -hmm. We have to have safe medicine. We have to have safe products, safe delivery methods. Um, for example, I've been, I've been screaming for years about the fact that people are making these products that are like, you know, nasal sprays and they're using MCT and things like that. And I've been like, well, the lungs are not designed to process lipids. Right. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor or scientist, but I know that. Right. I know that. Well, well, now there's a form of pneumonia that's developing where people are having their lungs coated with these oils and, the, and there's no way to process them out. That's scary. I know. That's incredibly scary. But, it, right. Well, what were you going to say? That's why we need regulate. That's why we need regulation. And I don't think, I mean, the FDA, are they the right group? I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly not going to say that, you know, we want to go the, the Bayer aspirin single, single molecule model. I think that, you know, there is a path through the FDA for, um, for uh, whole plant biopharmaceuticals, which is, of course, the space that I sit in uh, is all biopharma. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whether they're going to be the one to do it or not, but somebody, there needs to be a watchdog organization within our, within cannabis that, that points to these products and says, no, right. Where's your, where's your science behind that? Yeah. I, I, I think that that's incredibly important, especially when we're looking at policy um, in other States. Uh, When I go to other States, especially when they're creating policy, it's really interesting to see how it's mostly built on state culture and stigma rather than fact. And we have to change that. You know, I looked at um, a list that I don't know if they have it on their website anymore, but a few years back, Project CBD used to have this really um, handy list of all of the conditions in the United States. I'm sure it's way outdated. It's back when I think there were 13 states um, that were legal, uh, that has some level of legal uh, cannabis usage that all the different conditions that there that had been made legal across the United States. And what cracked me up was when you delve deeper into it, it was often some family member of some state government official 
who had a particular condition, and that would be why it was acceptable on the list. Mm-hmm. Well, do we really want that to be how we decide how how patients have access to medicine by the personal pet projects of some government official? I certainly don't think so. No, no, absolutely not. <sighs> well, I, as always... I always enjoy talking with you. We could talk for hours. I mean, sometimes we do, right? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, did you 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 saw Weed the People, right? The movie? Yes, and actually that was something that I wanted to mention in the podcast cuz it was a wonderful wonderful documentary and one of the things and I and I think I told you that when we met up was that I was so I wanted to come support you at one of the openings and I'm glad that I watched it at home because I cried like a baby. <laughs> Yeah, I always warn people. It's like, you know, and I can't imagine how you're not going to cry at some point, either of joy or sadness or something in there. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein did a really great job uh, documenting just this this story over all these years. Um, And, you know, even in there, it's like at the very beginning, I was having to treat the patients because I couldn't get a doctor to do it. But I was gathering the data. And the second I had a doctor, I was like, boom, here it is. Go. Um, One of the funniest things in the film is it shows me uh, speaking at Harvard Medical School, delivering a, a lecture. What they don't show is that Professor Raphael Meshulam is right in front of me. He was literally sitting right in front of me with nobody between him and me the whole time I'm talking. And I thought, I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. I I have no right to be here. You know, that whole that whole phenomenon that some of us, you know, overachievers have. Yes. You know, where we feel like we're not enough, even though we are. And yeah. And so the, the, the film shows really the journey through the cannabis industry and how much it's changed over the years, as well as these truly remarkable stories with these children. Yeah, oh, I and and it's available on Netflix. Is there any other place people can watch that? I think they can still get it on iTunes and Amazon and even Google Play, but it's free if you have the Amazon. I mean, I mean, I guess that's not free. You have to pay for your subscription. But if it's on it's on Netflix if you already have Netflix. Just put in Weed the People. That's in awesome. fact, I've actually, um, I was sitting on an airplane next to somebody that had a big iPad and they apparently had downloaded it and they were watching it so they could watch it on this international flight. Mm -hmm. And she kept kind of giving me the side eye. (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny. Like, huh? That's (laughs) awesome. We've, it was pretty funny. We've come such a far, a long, long way. I mean, and that is just another example of one of the positive ways of getting the message out. I, I remember um, years ago when you first started working on that and just being so curious to see how that was going to turn out. And, and really, as you watch the documentary, really seeing like the change and how things were evolving, even within the documentary itself. Um and it's just, it's so essential to have people like you here talking about it, reaching out to people. Um, our colleagues that were on the top stoners list who are really hardworking, intelligent, amazing individuals. Um, yes. You know, it, it just just all of that is 
working together to to create a message and to actually engage and get people to think critically about cannabis and, and all the good that it can do in combination with all the other good things we can do with our bodies. And it's important that people come in a way where they're going to be heard. Yes. If I walk in as a, you know, a grandma of six and I walk in there and I'm all dressed like in my, you know, businessy conservative kind of thing. And you're sitting there with, you know, piercings everywhere and tattoos and everything. You might make a judgment about me and not listen to anything I have to say. Right. So, but if I come in there and I've got, you know, four colors of hair and I've got all the you know, other things and I meet you where you are, then maybe you're going to hear me better. So stoner, not stoner, I just consider it more of a, we're all on a spectrum and where we are on the spectrum is who the audience is. They're going to do more likely to listen to what we have to say, because I tend to speak to uh, families that are very scared, but mostly I speak with medical professionals and people like that. They're not going to hear me if they can't see past the, the superficial. Yeah. So I think we need, there's room for both of us. There's room for, the, you know, the purple hair and the grandma. Well, and I, when it comes down to it, we, we all have the same good intent. Um, I remember one day I was, I was at the dispensary and I had a client who said to me, you know, you've, you've been working here. You've been working in this field for a long time. I bet you've seen a lot. And I said, yes, I have. And he leaned in like he thought I was going to give him some good dirt. And I said, you know, what I've learned is that we all want to be loved. We all want to be safe. We all want to be seen and heard. Absolutely, 100%. I couldn't agree more. You know, and what does cannabis do? It offers hope. It does. It does offer hope. And that's for the future, for the seeds that we are all planting for a healthy industry and movement and for the future of healthcare. I just, I'm, I'm very hopeful, but I also know that none of us will, uh, the work is not going to end anytime soon. No, I don't, I, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people are getting into this space and that's probably a separate uh, podcast that you and I can do on the state of the actual industry itself. Mm-hmm. Boy, I got a couple of thoughts on that one. Oh, but well. you know, everybody, a, a lot of people are getting into this planning their exit before they're even in or, or they're building a big giant business organization. Then, Oh, let's go figure out, Oh, an actual product it's completely approaching it backwards, you know, more like a hackathon than they are like the fact that they're trying to actually create a mind shift and a cultural shift and a science shift around the way that we approach healing and medicine. Um, And that's the part, that's the space I'm in. I want, you know, when someone says, you know, what is the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is a paradigm shift in medicine and how people treat the body back to a much more holistic approach to it and less of this, one pill, one symptom approach to medicine. Well, I think with that, we'll, we'll have better quality of life and quite possibly save many more lives than we are now. Absolutely. And we are going to have that conversation in a future <laughs> podcast, just for the record. 
Richard. Well, Mara. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mara Gordon, thank you so much for joining me today. And for listeners out there, definitely please check out the documentary, Weed the People. Uh, it's available on Netflix along with all the other avenues that we we talked about. Um, next week, or actually not next week, I'm not a weekly, I'm a monthly, but next month, tune in, we have another exciting guest and we'll be announcing that shortly. Mara, you're amazing. I love you. Thank you so very much for, for doing this with me today. It's been my pleasure. Love you. Love you too. Take care. Take care.